I'm Tony Epstein, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. is a journey into sound. Information in the form of energy streams in, streams in simultaneously through all of our sensory systems in the form of energy. Many of you heard the inspiring words of our nation's youth poet laureate, Amanda Gorman, the amazing, beautiful, young black woman who many say stole the show at the inauguration. Like many of you, I had not heard of her before and was so impressed I had to see what else I could find of hers. So today, we're going to hear some of what I found of this wonderful young poet, Amanda Gorman. And we'll begin with what may be my favorite poem, written and performed by Amanda Gorman, titled Earthrise. On Christmas Eve, 1968, astronaut Bill Anders snapped a photo of the Earth as Apollo 8 orbited the moon. 
Those three guys were surprised to see from their eyes a planet looked like an Earthrise, a blue orb hovering over the moon's gray horizon with deep oceans and silver skies. It was our world's first glance at itself, our first chance to see a shared reality, a declared stance, and a commonality, a glimpse into our planet's mirror. And as threats drew nearer, our own urgency became clearer as we realized that we hold nothing dearer than this floating body we all call home. We've known that we're caught in the throes of climactic changes some say will just go away while some simply pray to survive another day. For it is the obscure, the oppressed, the poor who when the disaster is declared done still suffer more than anyone. Climate change is the single greatest challenge of our time. Of this you're certainly aware, it's saddening, but I cannot spare you from knowing an inconvenient fact because it's getting the facts straight that gets us to act and not to wait. So I tell you this not to scare you, but to prepare you, to dare you to dream a different reality where despite disparities, we all care to protect this world, this riddled blue marvel, this little true marvel to master the verve and the nerve to see how we can serve our planets. You don't need to be a politician to make it your mission to conserve, to protect, to preserve that one and only home that is ours. To use your unique power to give next generations the planet they deserve. We are demonstrating, creating, advocating. We heed this inconvenient truth because we need to be anything but lenient with the future of our youth. And while this is a training and sustaining the future of our planet, there is no rehearsal. The time is now, 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 because the reversal of harm and protection of a future so universal should be anything but controversial. So, Earth, pale blue dots we will fail you not just as we chose to go to the moon we know it's never too soon to choose hope we choose to do more than cope with climate change we choose to end it we refuse to lose we do this and more not because it's very easy or nice but because it is necessary because with every dawn we carry the weight of the fates of this celestial body orbiting a star and as heavy as the weight sounded it doesn't hold us down but it keeps us grounded steady ready because an environmental movement of this size is simply another form of an earth rise to see it close your eyes visualize that all of us in this room and outside of these walls or in these halls, all of us change makers are in a spacecraft floating like a silver raft in space and we see the face of a planet anew. We relish the view, we witness its round green and brilliant blue which inspires us to ask deeply, wholly, what can we do? Open your eyes, know the future of this wise planet is right in sight, right in all of us. Trust this earth uprising, all of us bring light to exciting solutions never tried before, for it is our hope that implores us at our uncompromising core to keep rising up for an earth more than worth fighting for. Hey. 
Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for having me. I realized that I actually have 10 minutes to talk and I was going to read two poems. What I'd like to do instead is to read one poem, but to have a conversation about how that poem came to be. Because as I was reflecting this morning, I realized that that poem's history that it touches upon intersects directly with this academy as well as with its larger project. I perform my poetry around the country and one of the most thrilling things I've been able to do is do a few commissioned poems with CBS this morning. And they always come at me with these big ass. Like this summer, they actually came with me to write a poem for the 4th of July or celebration of our Independence Day. And I was very nervous to say yes, not because I'd be performing in front of half a million people and it would be live, or I'd be performing with this huge orchestra of the Boston Pops behind me with the legend Keith Lockhart. None of those reasons were really the reasons of why I was horrified. I was so filled with trepidation because I was worried that if I performed this poem that celebrated the founding fathers, I would then be erasing their humanity and their faults, which inform us of our role and our civic duty today. And I did a little bit of thinking and I did my homework and my research. I'm straight A student, so that's what I do. And I tried to think more about my role and what it meant to have a young black female poet writing this poem about our founding fathers. And I remembered Phyllis Wheatley, who was a slave who actually lived right here in Boston, who became the first published African-American poet. Now, at her time, you have to imagine this young, skinny, scrimpy girl who begins writing these poems and publishing them, and it sent a ripple throughout the intellectual elite of that time, to the point that this teenage girl is called into a tribunal here here in Boston and made to sit in front of 18 white men who are then going to judge by her prowess the role of blacks in arts and science. Now, interestingly enough, part of this 18-man panel was actually John Hancock, one of the Academy's founders. And so we don't really know what went down in the room where it happened, but we know that after this tribunal, Phyllis Wheatley leaves with this memento basically claiming that she is the true author for poems, that she does have the intellectual capacity to create art, and that she does have this role in her own poetry and her own authorship. Well... This was not enough for one of the other founding fathers. Never mind that George Washington had also read Phyllis Wheatley's poems and found that they were phenomenal and actually invited her here to Longfellow House, which had been his headquarters. There was another founding father by the name of Thomas Jefferson, who in Notes on the State of Virginia, which is considered to be one of the most important published documents of the 18th century, in which he writes that not only is it impossible for blacks to participate in things like science, but particularly that they don't have the capacity for art and that it makes no sense that a young black girl could ever write these poems. And so after doing my research and my history, I said, you know what? Thank you, Jefferson. I'm going to write this poem. I'm going to do it. And I bring that up not to necessarily harp on the Founding Fathers, but I think that if we were to erase their humanity, then we also erase the huge opportunity that is presented to us all to take up their mantle. And so when I decided to write this poem for CBS, I gave myself a few kind of parameters, which is to say I would recognize the gaps that were left in the work of our Founding Fathers and also the Intellectual Academy of the time. And I would take that as my own duty and responsibility to pay that 
step forward to continue the mission, to not look at the American democracy as something that's broken, but to look at it as something that's unfinished. And I think that's something that this convening represents. We all here know that there is work to be done and there is more work to do. And that's not necessarily something I think that's pessimistic. I think it's actually audacious in the hope that it represents. And so with that in mind, I wrote this poem. Imagine that there's the Boston Pops behind me and that we're on the Esplanade and there's fireworks, but it's called Believer's Hymn for the Republic. Twelve score and three years ago, to be exact, our founders dared to declare the world's most revolutionary act, a pact sworn for liberty and equality. Out of many was born one people, a teeming nation made of nations at its very foundation, a dream for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Today we gather so that our founders' words do not go diminished, but also so that the work does not go unfinished. For it's not just a declaration of independence, but the everyday declarations of its descendants that make a people equal. It is our right and our role to remember those words scratched on scrolls so we may live them and heal our nation whole. We roll up our sleeves. We believe in the dream, in these American stories, in the glory of the struggle. For it is our struggle that comes our nation's strength. For the lengths we fight for what is right is the fullest measure of our nation's might. And while we cannot shake or cast aside or past every day, we write the future together, we sign it together, we declare it, we share it, for this truth marches on inside each of us. Americans know one another by our love of liberty, when in fact we are liberated by our love for one another. We understand that a house divided cannot stand, so let us make a pact to be the country that acts as compassionate as we are courageous. In the Declaration's pages, we write a new order for the ages. Out of many, we are one, bright as a sun and bold as an eagle, a nation of all people, by all people, for all people. Let this 4th of July move forth or cry to redeem the dream. As we remember those words forever ignited that we have so long heard and recited that we are right to stand, but we are revolutionary when we stand united. Thank you. I'm going to read a poem that was inspired by a museum, this one being the African American History Museum of D.C. If you have not been there, go. It is worth the time. Basically, in this poem, I did a couple of weeks of research where I basically looked at all of the posters and flyers and pins that they had, and I took that text down, and I put that text into a poem. And the rule that I hold, held myself to was, say, I saw a protest flyer from the 1960s at that museum, and it said, Martin Luther King... I stand with him or something like that. I couldn't rearrange the words and say, I stand with King Martin Luther. I had to kind of keep the integrity of whatever that text was, but funnel it together into what feels like a poem. So this is that poem inspired by the African American History Museum. It's called Old Jim Crow Got to Go. 
old Jim Crow got to go. Whose face is white as snow, everywhere Daisy goes, no dogs, no Negro, I am a man. I am the way I am, I look the way I look, I am my age. I am a man. Black power core, Malcolm X speaks for me, he died to make men free. Malcolm's legacy, one man, one vote, SNCC, don't you want to be free? I'm for King's Way. Watch your backs, kill all blacks, run King out of Alabama, coking and cooking and smoking. Where are we at? Black males and endangered species, a perspective on solidarity. Black is beautiful, free. Angela Davis, now liberation in the making. Angela is free. Free all political prisoners, 50% black woman artists, revolutionary hope. Shirley Chisholm, unbiased and unbought anatomy of the black aesthetic and examination. Nikki Giovanni, Poet, critic, go home. Harriet Tubman, home. She allegedly has purchased several guns in the past. Consider possibly armed and dangerous. Small scars on both knees. Eyes, brown, race, Negro, nationality, American. What are girls made of? Catalyst for change. I believe in Nita Hill, age 26, height 5'8", hair black, occupation teacher. Women, free our sisters. What can a girl do? What have women done? What can you do? End racism and repression. Testimony from a black sister marks the beginning of a new era in the minds, in the hearts, in the lives of all black men and women. Get it? Together. Together march against slavery. We march with Selma. The moonwalk won't be as bad as our walk. Move on over or we'll move on over you. Lifting as we climb, we shall overcome. Freedom, ride, core. Keep us flying. Keep us flying. Don't you want to be free? Liberty and equality, they shall not die. Thank you. Anyway, so one thing that I made sure to include in that poem is I think the dual-edged power of words, which is I included both slave posters and kind of KKK text posters that had been used because I think it's important to show the full dexterity of what words can do and what, you know, the hurt that they can cause as well. This is a poem I wrote based off of an old film called The Murder in Mississippi. Don't watch it. I do not want you wasting your valuable, beautiful lives, but it was one director's attempt at kind of talking about race in Mississippi in the 1960s. And so this is kind of a similar poem where I decided to take some of the better lines from that film um, and incorporate it into my own piece. It's called Ourselves, Highfalutin Negroes. The word trembles in the mouth like a pit. Sit down, boy. I said, sit down, boy. Do what the law tells you to do. But what if the law only pities the few? What if the word flesh in your mouth is hushed, hot, and taut like a trigger? What if, digger, bury them deep, throw them in the pit, get moving, they say. They didn't know we were seeds, it's to say, didn't know we feed off of the underground, that we've been ground into chains, into rust, or rust into rail, or rail into must not fail, long-heard tales of words the tongue owns, like a birthmark. 
But this choking, this roping, this lynching, this smoking, the dying while hoping is a non-starter. I didn't come here to be no martyr. The man didn't die for me. He died for himself. He died in himself. The man who wasn't himself as long as he was something less than free. You see, you don't get out of your skin yet. Not when you can't begin to forget the word that scars like a beat. The letters in themselves assassins of dark meat. After all, they say murder in Mississippi is just another word for Monday. America, if you haven't heard her, her name is murder, born black into a back that chewed her. It is a different word and were the intruders. It sleeps in the word swollen from a pride that is not ego, but ego we throw to the clouds like a fist, enlisting the word in each row of bared teeth beneath the gum. The word thrums and trembles like a pit of pity, don't it? We've been buried, but despite the shooting, the looting, they wonder why a rootin' we grows to the sky, a hootin' we goes. We the proud word for highfalutin' Negroes. Let's see. I'm actually going to read another poem, which was also inspired by another piece here at MOCA. They had Carrie Jane's Marshall's work here on exhibition a few years ago, and it was just one of the most glorious things. So when I was asked in poetry class to write an ekphastic poem, which is basically a poem about a piece of art, I wrote this. It's called Mastery after that same exhibit. We be too cool. We be hot. We be beautiful. Full of it, we fled our lips with Vaseline and singed the hair into what should have been a birthright. Jazz and smoke soaks thick in the air, but not deep enough to drown our voices, floating like clumps of crows, tossed wingless, so the gossip has no choice but to perch soft on all of our padded shoulders. Leanne steps inside, the parlor swallows that thin child hole like paper round rock. Sit down here, sister. You're busy already with Nina. Let me nah. She wants an updo. I got you, honey. Yolanda wins the battle, blow dryer howl purring as she glitters about in a fleur-like red coat and a new African print jumpsuit. Soon, half of Leanne's hair is the Amazon rainforest and the other half the rain. Stop fidgeting. We ain't done. We still got the kitchen. Land's wine is high but resolved, a kettle sob fisted tight over water. Light twitches and seizures off of her gold hoops and weaponry. The glint slips into the mirrors eaten out by her own mastery. James takes a photo of April carving herself from her own squat in the mirror. In spinning her client to the waiting glass, Yolanda makes the black girl see a blackety black girl, gritting white, sitting proud, an eclipse pulled tall. You can count each swivel chair bolted down like a plumb line. Count on your fingers each of us, the garden of even better things coming, breasts bulging like wet meat, hair spinning forth like Scart's dark cauliflower. We be ghetto street furies turned riot of roses, thorned. We be no fools, we be grown, pains things, we be winking, a royal ruby split so hard, so much that it sings. Tonight, under astronaut hair dryers, we school ourselves, 
Listen. Bertha's chiming of her beautiful grandbabies and Julianne, whose brother died, and that sister of the friend who got married and the other one who's got a baby mom and lightning strike on its holy merry way. Tisk tisk. When the hot cones murmur in their clasps and the kink edges are sucked flat with lacquer and the cash licked into pockets, we know these roots be crowns no curls can call away. If so, only slowly. We'll be back in two weeks. Leanne's sister, toddler in velvet pink, has her gums clamped over a bottle, sipping blonde milk. Her fingers spit out at a white princess Yolanda forgot to sweep up. Hair done, we step over the two-dimensional white frame, cupping the floor like a collapsed moon. Thank God we be shadows no more. Okay, y'all are gonna make me cry. Let's sit, relax. Great, so any thoughts, commentary, concerns about my sanity? I'm all here. Yes, in the back, and please tell me your name as well. Yes, yes, you right there, yes. I don't have any comments or concerns. (laughs) I do have a question. Okay. First of all, wonderful. Thank you. Hands down, brilliant. my name is Faith. Hi, Yay. Hi, uh, Faith. Um, and my question is, who were some of the poets and mm. what were some of their works that inspired your type of poetic style? Ooh, thank you for your question, Faith. Um, but it's looking at the poetic style, but I also really like to understand that type of poetry and the socio-political context that exists in why are black poets writing this way? Why have they not been allowed to write this way before? And so that informs my vernacular as much as anything else. Thank you, Faith. Anybody else? I don't bite, I promise. Only sometimes. Yes? When writing poetry, do you ever categorize your writings? Like, mm. for example, let's say you want to write something specifically for the youth. Is that like a strategy that you have, a, a method? Mm, to like subtitle it like... Right, kind of, mm. yeah. Because I know you're very yeah. authentic. Thank you. And... I just wanted to better understand, you know, how you go about writing. Right, right. Yeah. Okay. And your name is? My name is Brene. Brene Robinson. Oh, lovely to meet you. Thank you so much for your question. I mean, when I ever begin to write a poem, this is a really great tip that I've kind of learned over time is, you know, not trying to worry first about making it fun or interesting or even entertaining, but what and who am I writing that poem for? And I think it can be very liberating because as long as you know who you're writing for, you kind of step and lean into that. Um, And so I'll have poems and like I said, I'll get feedback, it's too political, it's too black or whatever. I'm like, it's not for you anyways. Like, thanks for the commentary, but you know, right now I'm like digging into what it means to be a black woman. I'm not going to apologize for the purpose of this poetic. Awesome, thank you so much. Yes. I'll just hand you my mic. Karen, hi. We want to know about Harvard. Like, how is it? How did you make that transition? You know, it's a big change from where you came from. And tell us about that. Thank you so much. Let's see. Harvard has been very interesting. And I'll say something that I had to 
approach when I arrived there. You know, you go to Harvard and the, the things that people used to describe is it's, it's a lot of sharks <laughs> who are used to being the biggest fish in the pond and all of a sudden they're in the ocean and you're like, whoa. You know, there's a giant squid over there who like published eight books, you know, fixing cancer and like all of these other things. And, you know, I think especially when you're a woman, especially if you're a person of color, et cetera, et cetera, you step into that type of Ivy League environment and you go, you know, oh, what an honor for me to be here at Harvard. And it kind of in my second year in, I started thinking, what an honor for Harvard for me to be here. <laughs> and I don't say that with pretentiousness, I don't say that with ego, but it's me really owning up to the history and the legacy of the institutions that I've been lucky enough to have a key into. Now that I'm in, I kind of think of myself in some ways as Odysseus, like I'm in the Trojan horse, I'm like, yeah! Hey guys, and then I'm like gonna dismantle it from the inside. So I think, you know, I came to Harvard coming from a background in LA with my school teachers who really taught me to think critically, think outside the box. And so I'm still very much that same person, but it's more so treating my own personal journey in itself as one of the first, I think, battlegrounds of the justice that I think needs to come from higher education. Okay, thank you for that question. Yes. Hi, my name is Nicole. Hi. Um, so I kind of just wanted to ask how you manage your time because I feel like a lot of people in our generation want to contribute and build a platform to be heard and I feel like you've done so job at such a young age of like balancing school and all of these incredible accomplishments. So do you have any kind of um, advice for those of us who also want to aspire to be heard and make an impact? Nicole, for your question. Um, one, just disclaimer, I'm not perfect at this. You know, I am not balancing all the time. But what I think really helps me is being really explicit about what I want to contribute out of my life. And that means writing it down, reciting it to myself. So if I know that what matters to me is family, my friends, my education, but also being, you know, a specific voice in this specific field, all of a sudden managing my time becomes so much easier because rather than having everyone else decide what's important to me, I'm telling them, I'm vocalizing it. Um, for example, even with pitching this book every single meeting that I sat down and I was like, great, that's how much you want to offer. How much are we giving back to first book? How much could we give then to this type of program that would do this with the books? And because I walk into my life, my meetings, the bus, my classes, already with those aims explicitly inscribed on my head, it becomes so much harder kind of for the chaos of politics and just daily life to knock those down. So I think any way that you can write down, whether it's on your wall, on your phone, whatever, what really matters to you, to the boiled down dregs of the hot bottle tea of your life. What are the five ingredients? Thank you. I'm Carol. I'm just wondering what high school you went to here in LA and how was the transition from being in Los Angeles to Massachusetts and the haves and the have-nots? I went to New Road Kindergarten through my senior year, so I'm a, you know, Whole Foods, New Roads products, very organic. And really the transition, I think, I, I really woke up to that difference when it was like the day after the election and Trump had just won and I came out into Harvard Yard and everybody was wearing black and crying and not looking at each other and I was like, okay, where's the protest? Like, where are we showing up? And people were like, 
what are you talking about? Like, we're in mourning, we're grieving. Like, yeah, 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 I get that. But, like, are we meeting up in the yard or, like, outside the president's office? And, like, that was the big shift for me because I think, I think weather, honestly, has something to do with it. When it's 40 degrees, no one wants to protest. But I also think just culturally coming from California, coming from L.A., coming from the school I went to, I already had a rebel mentality in anything that I did. And then all of a sudden, I stepped into the Ivy League environment, which is like, yes, James, very good point. Yes, jolly good day, sir, whatever. But it's, you know, it's about conforming with the old traditional ideals of excellence. And excellence doesn't always include rebellion. And so that was something that I think even Harvard is now becoming better at. And now, you know, after things go down, we're all in the yard. I'm like, I knew I'd see you here someday, yes! But yeah, that's one of the things I had to bring with me and not let go. I wasn't gonna let that be eaten away by, you know, Cambridge winter, so. <laughs> Thank you, Renna. Hi, I'm really interested in the relationship for you. Having had a speech impediment, how that process of, um, Getting over that has affected your, process, your writing process and your interior process. Thank you for your great question. What has having a speech impediment done to influence my poetry? Everything. For example, my poetry is very preoccupied with sound and with how things not only look on the page, but how are they going to be received by an audience. I remember specifically when I was first starting out, I was being commissioned to write a whole bunch of poems at the time when I couldn't really say the letter R. I mean, the poems had to be about girls in the world and the planet Earth and all of these other things. I was like, oh, you gotta be kidding me. It was like, oh my God. So I tried to change. I was like, can I say young woman? Can I say planet? But it got to this point where it was like, to what extent am I going to manufacture my poem to then have it be received in this way on stage? So as I was working, I think, through my speech impediment, because I was always asking those types of questions, I think, you know, we mentioned being a bilingual poet. I think even within being a single language, multilingual poet, I think there's being a multimedia poet, which is mean I had to become something larger than just a poet on the page. I had to become someone different than someone who was just doing spoken word. I had to do both. I had to be both. Why? Because I was performing poetry and sometimes people didn't know what I was saying. So it has to look good on page, but it also has to make people feel something when it's recited out loud. And so I meet so many poets who are like, oh, I either do this on the page or I'm a slam poet and that's what I do. And I was kind of like, I had to really claim that piece of my identity, which is never going to want to be too far away from paper, but also never too far away from the mic. And I think that in itself changes the vernacular and the stylistic nature of my poems. Thank you guys so much. I'm going to be a mighty king like no king before. Everybody, look left, look right, everywhere you look, I'm standing in the spotlight. These were the words that I repeated to myself as I walked into the LA audition room where a hundred other girls were trying out to be Nala on Broadway in New York. The air smelled of Hollywood and desperation. You know, it was crammed with these monster mothers and the savage children. You have no idea. These kids are like little demons. They'll step the foot out to trip you. They'll be doing pirouettes around just to show off, randomly just do a backflip because they can, (laughs) whatever. 
And walking in, I was just really glad that I would never be <laughs> like that and that most of all, my mom would never be like one of those crazy, loco stage moms. I walked in and I remember her saying, Amanda, don't worry about it, just have fun and try your best. And I remember, you know, being in the corner, having my name on my back, doing my dance moves, stretching, getting it on, and a mother walks by and she goes, that's cute, but it's not amateur night. Yes, my mom snapped. She went, hell no. Nah. I know that lady didn't say that to my daughter. The lion of the king grew out. All of a sudden, it was just no lines drawn. Yelling, nasty comments at the other girls like, mm-hmm. I'm sure you other white girls didn't get the memo, but Lion King takes place in Africa. You can't... Learn melanin, honey, okay? Can't do makeup for that. I'm in the corner trying to pretend that my mom isn't my mom, and my twin sister's there. She's there, not really for emotional support, but just to let me know how much I can fail. So she comes up to me, and she's like, Yo, Amanda, I know you're nervous to, like, audition, because, like, you have a speech impediment and everything, and, like an auditory processing disorder and you look like the black girl version of Vessel Brand. <laughs> but just have fun and be yourself. My mom said, move out the way. You can have fun when I have my one-way ticket to New York City. Mom, what about being myself? Being yourself won't get you to the Lion King. Amanda, come over here. There's something you need to learn. You need to put yourself out there. So when you see the casting director, tell him you've already menstruated. You're post-pubescent. You won't grow. You'll look nine for forever. And if that doesn't work out, you can always, you know, act like a monkey, walk on your hands or some crap like that, and they might cast you as Rafiki. <laughs> I am trying to kind of hear what my mom says, but also stay sane. And I remember closing my eyes and just feeling I was so close to my dream. In my head, I saw myself loud and proud on a stage in front of a crowd, proving that a girl who was black and skinny and geeky and had a speech impediment could make it to Broadway. Finally, after a little bit, they call my number. I walk into the audition room, and in my head, I'm reciting the lyrics. I'm, 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 I'm gonna be a, a mighty king like no king before. I'm working on my roar, trying to be heard, but these words don't sound right. Could I ever be in the spotlight? And I'm there in front of the casting director, and I remember what my mom told me, so I said, yo, good news. I've already had my period, so... This is as high as I'm going to get. I can stay Nala for a really long time, if you know what I mean. And then I tell him, you know, I know I just sang that little Mighty King song, but I have other stuff in me. No! Zabahisa Zama! 
And then I heard my mom's voice in my head telling me to pull out all the stops that if worst came to worst and this was worst at the moment, I should, you know, walk on my hands or something and like act like a monkey. So I do not lie, I stepped back. and walked on my hands out of the audition room. <laughs> and I was waiting there with the other girls. Everyone's so tense. The monster moms are pushing people out the way so they can hear. And they start listing the names of people who get callbacks, and I'm so excited. And they haven't called my name yet. And the casting director comes out and says, thank you, everyone, for coming. That is all. And I remember feeling so broken by what was supposed to be my big break. And my mom came over to me and said, you know, it's okay, you tried your best. You're always going to be Nala in my heart. And part of me was so glad to know that I would never be like one of those girls who made it to Broadway because I would still make it here I'd still make it to now, being loud and proud in front of a crowd on a stage where I know I am a mighty king, mightier than before. I might be working on my roar, but look left, look right. Here I am tonight in the spotlight. I have two questions for you. One, whose shoulders do you stand on? And two, what do you stand for? These are two questions that I always begin my poetry workshops with students because at times poetry can seem like this dead art form for like old white men who just seem like they were born to be old, like you know, <laughs> Benjamin Button or something. And I ask my students these two questions, and then I share how I answer them, which is in these three sentences that go, I am the daughter of black writers who are descended from freedom fighters who broke their chains and changed the world. They call me. And these are words I repeat in a mantra before every single poetry performance. In fact, I was like doing it in the corner over there, I was like making faces. Um, and so I repeat them to myself. as a way to gather myself, because I'm not sure if you know, but public speaking is pretty terrifying. Um, I know I'm on stage and I have my heels and I look all glam, but I'm horrified. <laughs> and the way in which I kind of strengthen myself is by having this mantra. Most of my life, I was particularly terrified of speaking up because I had a speech impediment, which made it difficult to pronounce certain letters, sounds, and I felt like I was fine writing on the page, but once I got on stage, I was worried my words might jumble and stumble. What was the point in trying not to mumble these thoughts in my head if everything's already been said before? But finally, I had a moment of realization where I thought if I choose not to speak out of fear, then there's no one that my silence is standing for. And so I came to realize that I cannot stand standing to the side, standing silent. I must find the strength to speak up,
And one of the ways I do that is through this mantra, where I call back to what I call honorary ancestors. These are people who might not be related to you by blood or by birth, but who are more than worth saying their names because you stand on their shoulders all the same. And it's only from the height of these shoulders that we might have the sight to see the mighty power of poetry, the power of language made accessible, expressible. Poetry is interesting because not everyone is going to become a great poet, but anyone can be, and anyone can enjoy poetry. And it's this openness, this accessibility of poetry that makes it the language of people. Poetry has never been the language of barriers. It's always been the language of bridges, and it's this connection making that makes poetry, yes, powerful, but also makes it political. One of the things that irritates me to no end is when I get that phone call, and it's usually from a white man, and he's like, "Man, Amanda, we love your poetry. We'd love to get you to write a poem about this subject, but don't make it political." Which to me sounds like I have to draw a square, but not make it a rectangle, or like build a car, not make it a vehicle. It doesn't make much sense because all art is political. The decision to create, the artistic choice to have a voice, the choice to be heard, is the most political act of all. And by political, I mean poetry is political in at least three ways. One, what stories we tell. When we're telling them, how we're telling them, if we're telling them, why we're telling them, says so much about the political beliefs we have about what types of stories matter. Secondly, who gets to have those stories told? I'm talking who is legally allowed to read, who has the resources to be able to write, who are we reading in our classrooms? Says a lot about the political and educational systems that all these stories and storytellers exist in. Lastly, poetry is political because it's preoccupied with people. If you look in history, notice that tyrants often go after the poets and the creatives first. They burn books. They try to get rid of poetry and the language arts because they're terrified of them. Poets have this phenomenal potential to connect the beliefs of the private individual with the cause of change of the public, the population, the polity, the political movement. And when you leave here, I really want you to try to hear the ways in which poetry is actually at the center on our most political questions about what it means to be a democracy. Maybe later you're going to be at a protest and someone's going to have a poster that says they buried us, but they didn't know we were seeds. That's poetry. You might be in your U.S. history class, and your teacher may play a video of Martin Luther King Jr. saying, "We will be able to hew out of this mountain of despair a stone of hope." That's poetry. Or maybe even here in New York City, you're going to go visit the Statue of Liberty, where there's a sonnet that declares, "As Americans, give us your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to be free." So you see, when someone asks me to write a poem that's not political, what they're really asking me is to not ask charged and challenging questions in my poetic work, and that does not work because poetry is always at the pulse of the most dangerous and the most daring questions that a nation or a world might face. What past do we stand on as a people, and what future as a people do we stand for? 
And the thing about poetry is that it's not really about having the right answers. It's about asking these right questions about what it means to be a writer doing right by your words and your actions. And my reaction is to pay honor to those shoulders of people who use their pens to roll over boulders, so I might have a mountain of hope on which to stand, so that I might understand the power of telling stories that matter no matter what. So that I might realize that if I choose not out of fear but out of courage to speak, then there's something unique that my words can become. And all of a sudden, that fear that my words might jumble and stumble go away as I'm humbled by the thoughts of thousands of stories a long time coming that I know are strumming inside me as I celebrate those people in their time who stood up so this little black girl could rhyme. As I celebrate and call their names all the same, these people. Who seem like they were just born to be bold? Maya Angelou, Entozaki Shange, Phyllis Wheatley, Lucille Clifton, Gwendolyn Brooks, Joan Wicks, Audrey Lord, and so many more. It might feel like every story has been told before, but the truth is. No one's ever told my story in the way I would tell it. As the daughter of black writers who are descended from freedom fighters who broke their chains and changed the world, they call me. I call them. And one day I'll write a story right by writing it into a tomorrow on this earth more than worth standing for. Mr. President, Dr. Biden, Madam Vice President, Mr. Emhoff. Americans and the world. When day comes, we ask ourselves, where can we find light in this never-ending shade? The loss we carry, a sea we must wade. We've braved the belly of the beast. We've learned that quiet isn't always peace, and the norms and notions of what just is isn't always just is. And yet the dawn is ours before we knew it. Somehow we do it. Somehow we've weathered and witnessed a nation that isn't broken, but simply unfinished. We, the successors of a country and a time where a skinny black girl, descended from slaves and raised by a single mother, can dream of becoming president. Only to find herself reciting for one, and yes, we are far from polished, far from pristine. But that doesn't mean we are striving to form a union that is perfect. We are striving to forge our union with purpose to compose a country committed to all cultures, colors, characters, and conditions of man. And so we lift our gaze not to what stands between us, but what stands before us. We close the divide because we know to put our future first. We must first put our differences aside. We lay down our arms so we can reach out our arms to one another. We seek harm to none and harmony for all. Let the globe, if nothing else, say this is true. That even as we grieved, we grew. That even as we hurt, we hoped. That even as we tired, we tried. That we'll forever be tied together, victorious, 
not because we will never again know defeat, but because we will never again sow division. Scripture tells us to envision that everyone shall sit under their own vine and fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. If we're to live up to our own time, then victory won't lie in the blade, but in all the bridges we've made. That is the promised glade, the hill we climb, if only we dare it, because being American is more than a pride we inherit. It's the past we step into and how we repair it. We've seen a force that would shatter our nation rather than share it would destroy our country if it meant delaying democracy. And this effort very nearly succeeded. But while democracy can be periodically delayed, it can never be permanently defeated. In this truth, in this faith we trust, for while we have our eyes on the future, history has its eyes on us. This is the era of just redemption. We feared it at its inception. We did not feel prepared to be the heirs of such a terrifying hour, but within it we found the power to author a new chapter, to offer hope and laughter to ourselves. So... While once we asked, how could we possibly prevail over catastrophe? Now we assert, how could catastrophe possibly prevail over us? We will not march back to what was, but move to what shall be, a country that is bruised, but whole, benevolent, but bold, fierce, and free. We will not be turned around or interrupted by intimidation because we know our inaction and inertia will be the inheritance of the next generation. Our blunders become their burdens. But one thing is certain. If we merge mercy with might and might with right, then love becomes our legacy and change our children's birthright. So let us leave behind a country better than the one we were left with every breath from my bronze-pounded chest. We will raise this wounded world into a wondrous one. We will rise from the gold-limbed hills of the West. We will rise from the wind-swept Northeast where our forefathers first realized revolution. We will rise from the lake-rimmed cities of the Midwestern states. We will rise from the sun-baked South. We will rebuild, reconcile, and recover in every known of our nation in every corner called our country. Our people, diverse and beautiful, will emerge battered and beautiful. When day comes, we step out of the shade of flame and unafraid. The new dawn blooms as we free it. For there is always light if only we're brave enough to see it, if only we're brave enough to be it. Today we're exploring the poetry of Amanda Gorman, our nation's Youth Poet Laureate, an overnight sensation since the inauguration last week.
you will be told that this is not a problem, not your problem. You will be told that now is not the time for change to begin, told that we cannot win. But the point of protest isn't winning, it's holding fast to the promise of freedom, even when fast victory is not promised, meaning we cannot stand up to police if we cannot cease policing our own imagination, convincing our communities that this won't work before the work has even begun, that this can wait when we've already waited out a thousand suns. By now, we understand that white supremacy and the despair it demands are as destructive as any disease. So when you're told that your rage is reactionary, remember that rage is our right. It teaches us it is time to fight in the face of injustice. Not only is anger natural, but necessary because it helps carry us to our destination. Our goal has never been revenge, just restoration, not dominance, just dignity, not fear, just freedom, just justice. Whether we prevail is determined not by all the challenges that are present, but by all the change that is possible. And though we be unstoppable, if we ever feel like we might fail, if we be fatigued and frail when our fire can no longer be fueled by fury, we will be fortified by this faith found in the vow the anthem, all black lives matter no matter what. Black lives are worth living, worth defending, worth every struggle. We must stand up for all of us in our aims, united through protest and pain, amplifying women, the LGBTQ community, and people with disabilities, because none of us are free until all of us break our chains. We owe it to the fallen to fight, but we owe it to ourselves to never stay kneeling when the day calls us to stand together. We envision a land that is liberated, not lawless. We create a future that is free, not flawless over and over again and again we will stride up every mountainside magnanimous and modest we will be protected and served by a force that is honored and honest this is more than protest it's a promise when i see young women I see the glow in their impact, how they act, what we do and what we know. It's a kind of sheen that can't be seen in glass, diamond or dewdrop, but the light of a wave of girls who refuse to be stopped. We don't need permission to make it our mission to make change, to be ourselves unapologetically confident, beautifully strange. We are that dawn of a billion beams, the radiance gleam, that stardust of a girl following her dreams. You can't steal this sparkle of mine. It only comes from a woman letting herself shine. It would appear we are all here, focused, fierce, Without fear, each a flame dazzling and clear. Although some may doubt it, we show them. We write this poem. We dazzle. We delight. We dare. We fight. Joyous all the hustle in the spark. Join us, the wondrous warriors in the dark.
Women in the world making change, we hear it and how our hearts hum it. Change, we feel it and how our dreams drum it. Change. Trumpet to life in the impact. In fact, even with the whole world on our backs, we overcome it. Because women in the world don't run from it, we run it. Each of us standing on one another's shoulders. Each of us a summit. Together, Together today, and this summit, we don't just make change, we become it. two hours and all I heard from staff was basically about how energetic and enthusiastic this crowd is. So I'm holding you to that expectation because as was said, I'm a poet and the way I know what poems to read, what you guys are feeling is if you tell me. So be as vocal, be as loud as you want and I will take that all in. Okie doke, let's go. Nice, yes. Cool. So I was asked to talk about myself, which I really like to do. I don't think I'm that interesting, but what I was really excited to do is hopefully share some poetry because I feel a lot of where my poetry comes from is actually rooted in values that are very similar to city years. To tell you a bit about myself, I am 20 years old, although I have the body of a 10-year-old. I grew up in Los Angeles, California with... Yes, L.A. Just saying, there's going to be a lot of L.A. pride. I'm sorry. I'm not sorry. 
As Beyonce says, I was raised by my single mother, who was a sixth grade English teacher, and she really endowed me with the value of education, not just for myself, but for others. A lot of what she does in her school site in Watts is working with schools. Yes, Watts in the house. There we go. Yes, Watts. Lighting up the sky, I see. So basically, what my mom did is really taught me about the importance of literacy, education, reading, writing, and you know, really preparing yourself to take your knowledge to the next level. I'm going to start with a really brief poem, which is about where I'm from and who I come from. You will not know these streets if you have not been to LA. But hopefully, my Angelinos, people who worked in the Los Angeles site, you'll. Be able to picture the areas that I'm talking about. This is called Daughters Metro Map to City Identity. On Slauson Avenue, I start a black girl tango between Northern Heights and South Hair Salon's home. Here, I am diamond solidary treasure on Western. I am unclean Christian scribbling homilies on the spines of wrinkled church fans. Here, I am veteran clutching cement scar. I am banded sticking. To sidewalk, I am hymnal of homebound, homeless, impoverished, and important. Writing a city memory, the blood vessel sidewalks pumping my lungs until I mold existing, included, unforgettable. Was that one? Cool. I heard someone snapping. Who was snapping? Yes. If you hear a line, this sounds very self-serving, but I'll explain why. If you hear a line that you're really feeling, or you're like,、mm, some magic was just dropped, you can snap, and that lets me know, okay, the crowd is feeling this. Or if you don't, it's kind of like this is not what they're feeling. But if you can't snap, I can't. Because my fingers are like twigs, you can make what I call the dark chocolate noise. It's like.、Mm. Mm. 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 It's like you know when you see black women in church and on the front row with the big hats, like.、Mm. Oh, feeling the spirit. So if you got the spirit, let me know. This poem I'm going to read, I actually read. I wrote a little bit. I do some work with the United Nations Foundation and supporting education. But something that I really noticed about a lot of these events I was going to is whether it's in London or D.C., a lot of the conversation was around education in third world countries, which of course I really support and I'm all about that. But you kind of look around, and you're like, do they not realize there's serious educational gaps in the United States? In the UK, in South Africa, it's everywhere. And just because your flag is red, white, and blue, or whatever, doesn't mean that you're immune to those socio-economic differences. So this is a poem that I wrote about the power of first, the people who, like we saw in the video, who are breaking through the cycle. Whether that is in the United States, in the UK, in Tanzania, wherever it may be, breaking that cycle. The power of first. Power and furls in a boy or a girl at school, like the first pages of a book, unwritten. They are a story waiting to ignite. An educated student is like the question the first rain tosses at the earth after the drought. Are you ready to begin again? A student who dreams to be the first in the family to go to school is the most vivid of things, like the one red spark that stands up to the sky in a chorus of wet logs. 
A student who graduates college is like the first wave to hug the shore after a hurricane whispering the coming of better things. These we know as truths, not wonders. The miracle isn't just in you being the first, it is in you seeing that which is non-existent. It is in the student seeing the blank space of an untouched sky and sculpting their own dreams into that nothingness. A student who is the first is a vision in and of themselves. These students don't want to be unbelievable, they want to be believed in. For educated people, not to be a marvel, but a movement. After all, you don't know how strong the willow tree is until you see her arms dance in the face of the storm. We remember this and more so that we might imagine a day without sets first where the wind opens up the floodgates for the river of students behind them. We are here not to be the first, but to refuse to be the last. Okay, feeling it a little bit, thanks. Y'all started out so slow, I was like, mm, and then it build, okay, so I see you have a crescendo orchestra effect going. Ooh, I have a bit more time, so I'll talk a little bit about myself how I got into poetry. Growing up, I was born early, which also meant I was born with a speech impediment and an auditory processing disorder. So what that basically means is that, you know, when I was very young and when you're in that developmental stage between zero and three or whatever it may be, and you're learning how to process auditory information, my brain was lagging a bit behind. So I hear normally like other people, but my brain processes that information at a slower level. And now if you see that as you know a student in the classroom, what that meant is that I was very easily categorized as dumb by you know third graders who didn't have higher vocabulary, they just said, you know, dumb. Or, you know, kind of behind being in the lower reading groups, yada 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 yada, until my mom found out that they put me in the lowest reading group. Because she looked over, I was on the couch and I was reading some Dr. Seuss stuff. She's like, what are you reading? And I was like, oh, you know, this is what they signed me. This is what they said my reading level was. And she came to my school the next day. She's like, where is the fourth grade teacher? Emily, where's she at? And she was like, bring it all. She was like, Amanda's writing books. She's like, she's not even just reading them, she's writing them. And so they put me in the highest reading group and they're like, okay, we'll see how this works out. And I like read the book in a night and I was just there sitting there like, oh yeah, it was good. Um, a bit short though. <laughs> all that to say, you know, getting into poetry was really my way to communicate as someone with the auditory processing disorder and with a speech impediment because when I was writing, when I was creating, it didn't matter how I sounded, it didn't matter how I heard things, all that mattered was my words on the page. And that's where I found my real voice. And like I said, for me that connects to, you know, not letting my teacher said this, and he was real radical, you know, not letting school get in the way of your education. It's kind of taught me that we have so many incredible mentors represented here at City or duh, you know, first and foremost. But in many ways, there are flaws in the educational system. But it's up to the people, like the mothers, like the mentors, like the City or AmeriCorps, who come in and make sure that students who have fallen through the cracks get lifted up. So I'm going to read a poem about me discovering my poetic voice and dealing with having speech impediment going up. Linguistics rising. 
From a young age, my lips learned the bittersweet honey of language, its heavy, rich significance. Left thirsty from the letters that would drip from my mouth and die all too soon, I taught myself not to indulge in correct pronunciation, but in honeycombs of literature. The pale, yellowing pages of forgotten books, the dance ink and paper embark on in a tango of penmanship the forbidden and addictive romance between my pen and my fingers. At five, I saw power lapped up by sugar white cheeks and thin pink lips, and I found solace in the ebony blood of my pen against my cool black flesh. When puberty's lush velvet curtains pulled apart, my accent was no longer cute. Curiosity and bewilderment perspired on people's tongues, moist with the question, where are you from? Like a cane, I bent to their expectations, saying that my mouth's odd choreography was some South Africa or New York or the UK, muffling myself in cloaks of different assumed nationalities to clothe my letters was my diagnosis, and poetry was my medicine. When I thought I was an alien, abandoned here by my true relatives, my body stiff as a ruler, my figure thin as a sheet of math homework, Poetry told me nothing that is human can be alien to me. I forgot all of what was said, yet when people asked me to repeat three times, I knew, just as Maya Angelou thought Shakespeare knew what it was like to be a black girl in the South, I knew Maya Angelou felt how it felt to be a black girl in L.A. straddling a speech impediment in a book bag. I will not lay you to rest I will lay you to rise in the climb of my tongue. Okay. Y'all getting loud now, okay. I think I might read one last poem, because it's on the longer side. To give you some context, as youth poet laureate, a lot of people are like, what is that? And my mom was like, what is that? Fun fact, my roommates in college actually thought it meant like I was the Lorax from like the Dr. Seuss book. <laughs> so it showed up, you're like, she speaks for the trees that cannot speak for they have no voice. <laughs> I mean, I get it. I'm wearing orange, I have the curly hair, I'm this tall, like it all fits, it all makes sense. I speak in rhyme, yeah, yeah, yeah. I should have expected that coming. But as youth poet laureate, what really my job is to be is to be a national representative of poetry, literacy, and education across the country. And since this is the first time they've done it, it can look like anything, any given day, while I also have classes, which, yeah, is kind of a big deal. And that can be from giving State of the Union address on MTV in verse, or meeting my idol, Lin-Manuel Miranda. <laughs> I'm sorry. He's, he's everything in a bag of chips. Or <laughs> meeting Michelle Obama back at the White House when it was the Black House. <laughs> She smells like heaven. Like, I'm surprised, like, Secret Service didn't, like, drag me off, because, like, I hugged her, and I was like... <laughs> so, yeah. And I'm like, by the way, this is, you know, the weirdo who's going to school with your daughter next year. Hey! 
I want to say, this is a poem which I was commissioned to write for the Library of Congress a few months ago, and it was to open up the literary season. But what was most difficult about this poem is, as you poet laureate, what I hear a lot is people telling me, we need you to write a poem, but don't make it political. And I'm just like, there's so much wrong with that. I don't even know how to educate you at the moment. But, you know, it's especially happening at this just such sociopolitically charged moment when we were having hurricanes, we were having wildfires, we were having flooding. It was just, you know, insane, not only on a natural scale, but what was going on in people around the country. And I kind of took what was told to me about not being political. I threw that out the window because I was like, art is political. Me being a black woman up here is political. Like, I don't know who informed you wrong. And I was just really blown away by all the flags and the places that I saw represented here. And that's something I tried to capture in this poem. So I thought I might read it for you. It is called In This Place. There's a poem in this place, in the footfalls, in the halls, in the quiet beats of the seats. It is here at the curtain of day where we write a lyric we must whisper to say. There's a poem in this place in the heavy grace, the lined face of this noble building, collections burned and reborn twice. There's a poem in Boston's Copley Square where protest chants tear through the air like sheets of rain, where love of the many swallows hatred of the few. There's a poem in Charlottesville where tiki torches string, a ring of flame tight round the wrist of night, where men so white they gleam blue, seem like statues, where men heap that long wax burning ever higher where Heather Heyer blooms forever in a meadow of resistance. There's a poem in the great sleeping giant of Lake Michigan defiantly raising its big blue head to Milwaukee and Chicago, yes? A poem begun long ago, blazed into frozen soil treading upward in the glow. There's a poem in Florida and Puerto Rico and East Texas where streets swell into a nexus of rivers, cows afloat like mottled boys in the brown, where courage is now so common that 23-year-old Jesus Contreras rescues senior citizens from floodwaters. There's a poem in Los Angeles. Yawning wide is the Pacific tide where a single mother swelters in a windowless classroom teaching black and brown students and watts to spell out the thoughts so her daughter might write this poem for you. There's a lyric in California where thousands of students march for blocks undocumented and unafraid where my friend Rosa finds the bower to blossom and deadlock her spirit, the bedrock of her community. She knows hope is like a stubborn ship gripping a dock, a truth that you can't stop a dreamer or knock down the dream. How could this not be her city, su nation, our country, our America, or United Kingdom, or South Africa, or lyric to write to? A poem by the people, the poor, the Protestants, the Muslim, the Jew, the native, the immigrant, the black, the blind, the blind, the brave, the undocumented and undeterred, the woman, the man, the non-binary, the trans, the ally to all of the above and more. Tyrants fear the knowledgeable. 
They fear the child who dreams like a poet. Now that we know it, we can't blow it. We owe it to show it, not slow it, although it hurts to sow it. When the world skirts below it, hope we must bestow it like a wick in the poet so it can grow lit, bringing with it new stories to rewrite. There's a story of a Texas city depleted, but not defeated, and history written that need not be repeated, a nation composed, but not yet completed. There's a poem in this place, a poet to every student who rewrites their nation, who tells a story worthy of being told on this minnow of an earth to breathe hope into a palimpsest of time, a poet and every teacher who sees that a poem penned isn't a poem's end. There's a place where this poem dwells. It is here, it is now, at the curtain of day, where America is writing a lyric we are all beginning to say. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was Amanda Gorman, our nation's amazing youth poet laureate and overnight sensation who stole the spotlight at the inauguration last week.
And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. And if you haven't contributed to our end-of-year fundraiser to help us realize the dream of true community radio, please go to WGDR.org and make a generous donation. And to everyone who has already given, thank you so much. We love you and look forward to bringing you great radio for many years to come. And until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other. Stop.